morning, afternoon. <laughs> I on the same time as Josh. So if you see me glancing, it's like for the, for the switch. But it's good to be with you this morning. And I know I, it was my very first sermon here about five years ago, almost to the day, because Barn Party marks the anniversary of Josh and I being here. Barn Party Sabbath was like our first Sabbath. It was a little earlier this year, so I think it might be like technically in a week or so for five years here. But that first sermon I shared with you a little bit about myself. The goal was to kind of get to know one another, you to get to know me, and then afterwards you could introduce me to yourself. But um, so some of you have heard a little bit about what I'm going to share with you. Uh, others of you that I interact with on a one-on-one way regularly hear about it more often. But, um, but so I'm going to share with you a little bit again about myself. If you were to attempt to describe my personality, you might consider using the word perfectionistic. Now, this is a little ironic because... I'll be the first one to tell you that I'm far from perfect. Being a perfectionist doesn't mean that you think you are perfect. It means that you have a little more drive to have a flawless process and results than the average person. In fact, I often make mistakes because I'm trying to be perfect. How's that for irony, right? One of the things I am most passionate about in my perfectionism is efficiency. I hate wasting things. Food, money, opportunities. I hate just the thought of wasting them. Yet there is a resource in this world that is as valuable to my personality as any other. Time. I hate wasting time. If I feel my time slipping away, well, let's just say that I don't always handle it perfectly. There's a story in the gospel account of Mark that consistently challenges me in meaningful and necessary ways. And I'm excited to journey through it with you today. But before we begin, I'd like to have a word of prayer with you. Oh, dear Lord, thank you for for being present here in in this moment and for guiding us to this point to hear your words, and I pray that they will be as impactful to everyone as they have been to me, um, even more so. In your name I pray, amen. So in chapter 5, Mark has been recounting miracles that Jesus has done around the Sea of Galilee. Last week, Pastor Rodney shared with us about the miracle described in the very first part of Mark 5, and I want to just pick up where he left off. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and it will also be on the screen for us. Starting in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. 
please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. I'm not sure if Jesus had an agenda once or plans that he had for once he reached the shore. But the text tells us that because there was this large crowd gathered around, he stayed by the seashore. Perhaps because the crowd was so large and was pressing in against him, maybe he didn't even really have a choice aside from performing another miracle. But either way, I am astounded by Jesus' willingness to give of his time. It is hardly ever that I don't have an agenda. I don't know if God, Jesus' agenda was just to be at their disposal or if he changed it for them. Either way, I'm just in awe. While Jesus was within this crowd, a synagogue official named Jairus, he approaches. And I would imagine that he was able to approach through such a thick crowd uh, because of his prestigious position, right? As a synagogue official, Jairus was most likely a Pharisee and a rabbi in his own right. He was undoubtedly known in the community. His clothing would have given him away, as well as his attendance, perhaps. So the crowd maybe even parted for him. Regardless, I really doubt that anything could have stopped him from getting to Jesus because he was a desperate man seeking healing for his daughter who was about to die. He asked that Jesus lay his hands on her. Jairus didn't ask Jesus if he's able to heal her. He believed he could. He simply asks him to come. And Jesus went. Well, meanwhile, there was another person seeking Jesus' healing power. So let's keep reading. Verse 25. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. So an unnamed woman, she's been seeking healing from various physicians over 12 years. She's seeking Jesus right now to be healed by him. The text says that she suffered from a hemorrhage. But more specifically, the Greek text literally say, says that she had a flow of blood. In addition to all the health issues that come with blood loss, there was another type of suffering that this woman would have been experiencing for the past 12 years. The suffering that comes from being a social outcast. In the Jewish culture, blood was considered unclean. There were rituals that you could do to cleanse yourself after that contact or experience with blood. But in this woman's circumstances, there was no end to the blood for the past 12 years. So she was untouchable and not to be associated with, or else she would actually make the people she came into contact with unclean as well. So with this in mind, it's not too surprising that she would attempt to touch Jesus 
without being noticed. How bad would it be to just be in uncleaning people all around? Like, that would be even more socially horrible, right? So she's like, oh, there's a big crowd. This is my opportunity. Nobody can look. And also, he's going somewhere, right? Don't want to interrupt that. Quick. Well, similar to Jairus, this woman believed that a touch was all it would take. That's all she needed was just a touch. And he didn't even have to touch her. She just had to touch him in her mind. If she could just touch his cloak. Well, based on the prophet Malachi's writings, the Messiah, or the son of righteousness, he would come with healing in his wings. That's in Malachi 4, verse 2. We know from studying the Hebrew word that Malachi uses, kanaf, that it has a broader meaning to it than just wings. It can also be translated extremity, edge, border, corner, and particularly in relationship to a garment. This woman's belief that she could touch the edge of his garment and be healed was a huge statement of her belief that he was the promised one, that he was the Messiah. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. Immediately, the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The whole truth. I wonder how long it took for her to explain 12 years of dealing with this affliction. Of physicians who had been unable to help her and even had made her health worse. I imagine that being a very long story. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now we've just spent a bit of time in this woman's shoes. And when wrapped up in her ordeal, we delight at the miracle. But wait. Jesus was doing something, wasn't he? He was going somewhere. Oh, that's right. Jairus' daughter was about to die. He was following the desperate Jairus to his house to heal his daughter before she died. There was no time to delay. This really brings me to wonder how Jairus is feeling throughout this woman's, no doubt, long story of how she came to be there that day. I think anxious is an understatement. I know with my personality, and if it was this desperate of a situation, my child dying, I would have interrupted the woman's interactions with Jesus on multiple occasions. I would have been 
a mess. I don't even know how to describe what a big mess I would have been in. So let's keep reading and see what finds out. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly wailing, weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make such a commotion and weep? The child is not dying, but is asleep. What does Jesus mean by this statement? The child is not dead, but asleep? Sleep as a metaphor for death has actually been used in both the Old and the New Testament writings to differentiate it from that final death that one cannot wake up from. David wrote like this in Psalm 13, 3. He says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. It's also not the only time Jesus referred to death as a sleep during his ministry here on earth. In John chapter 11, he told his disciples that he must go to his friend Lazarus because he was sleeping and Jesus needed to wake him up. And the disciples did not understand him. They, they thought Lazarus was sick. Let him sleep. Don't wake him up. However, John fills the reader in on the fact that Lazarus was actually dead. And although Lazarus had been dead for four days by the time Jesus arrived, Jesus still operates as if he was waking him up from a sleep when he called him to come out of the tomb. And then there's a passage that really flushes this metaphor out for us. It can be found in Paul's letter to the, first Thessalon to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 17. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus means to comfort them with his declaration that the girl is not dead. She's not died a death that no one can come back from. Her death was like a sleep, which he was about to resurrect her from. Verse 40, they began laughing at him. Sorry, I'm like not waiting for it. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. 
Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talithakum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. <laughs> A truly remarkable and dramatic story of healing. And you can probably already see how these stories challenge my struggle with time management. Maybe you can even relate. Time is a tricky thing. And the story forces us to confront a few things. The first of the concepts, the first concept that we're forced to confront is that of urgency. God's relationship to time, it's different than ours. Because we exist in time, God's relationship to time is difficult for us to define. We could go deep in the weeds in attempting to define it more fully. But all I want to do today is to acknowledge two things. God is bigger than time. And God is not bound by time. Our sense of urgency is most commonly generated by our perception of how much time is required to change our circumstances compared to our perception of how much time is available. Are you tracking with me? That was a long sentence. And our perception is limited, very limited. God can move with urgency, but his sense of urgency is not generated by his perception of how much time is required to change our circumstances. In his perspective, it's no time at all. Nor is his sense of urgency generated by his perception of how much time is available. We use the expression, I've got all the time in the world. But God made all the time in the world. There's no limit to his time. His sense of urgency is generated by us. He is compassionate and gracious. He is perfectly empathetic. In other words, our sense of urgency is built on our perception of limitations. God is not limited by time. But he cares about us. And sometimes his compassion moves him to graciously adopt our sense of urgency. We need to acknowledge that we have a limited perspective and a less than ideal perspective. So to help us grasp this a little bit better, I want to invite you to pull out your bulletins. In your bulletin is this really odd flyer. looks like this. 
And right now would be a good time if anybody didn't get a bulletin, like one of the kids maybe, there are some loose ones being passed out for you to get. I want to make sure that anybody who wants to do this activity can. So kids, this is a fun one. Grab one of these flyers, and you're going to want to borrow the pencil that's in the back of the pew in front of you, or if you have your own. When you get your paper and your pencil, you'll see in the middle, there's this black dot. And you're going to poke a hole in it with your pencil. But not a big hole, just a hole as big of, as your pencil, okay? So don't hurt yourself. You just kind of poke a hole in the center where that black dot is. Let me see your papers when you got them all ready, okay? When you got your holes marked, just kind of, oh, I see. Very good. James, you got your paper? Oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> okay, everybody's got your paper that's going to do it, right? Okay, take your pencils out. Put your pencils down. Okay, now what you're going to do is you're going to bring this paper up to your face and you're going to look at me. Can you see me? You see my white dress and my boots? Just make sure you're looking at me. Not perfectly. You can't see me perfectly. Yeah, maybe even you have a piece of paper like kind of flapping over your eye hole. So if you see me, you probably can't see Josh over there with his juggling act, right? At least I hope not if you were doing it right. <laughs> Give a round of applause for Josh. Pastor Josh and his juggling. <laughs> a little fun thing to really kind of bring it home. This is our perspective of things. It's not perfect, right? It turns out that while looking through the hole in the paper, there is a lot that we can't see. We have a limited perspective. And whether God chooses to empathetically adopt our sense of urgency or not, we need to acknowledge that we have a very poor perspective to judge whether or not God is moving with enough urgency. We're invited to lay our urgency at Jesus' feet and trust his perception and his power and his goodwill towards us and to receive his peace. In his letter to the Philippian church, the Apostle Paul says, the Lord is at hand. Jesus is accessible. He is present. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's no promise given that God will move with urgency or even at all. It is an invitation to submit our cares to him, trust him, and receive his peace. Perhaps you have received a pretty heavy diagnosis from your doctor, and you've been praying for healing. 
Maybe there's a relationship with a spouse or a family member that is strained or, or even broken, and you have been praying for reconciliation. Or maybe there's tension in the workplace. It's high and it's growing, and you have been praying that God would intervene in some way. And maybe it seems like God hasn't shown up yet. Our perspective is limited. We don't know the end from the beginning. But we can bring our cares to the one who does and receive his peace. He will move when the timing is right from his perfect perspective. We don't know what what might be the reason for the delay, nor is he required to tell us. But we can let our urgency go and receive the peace that he offers Peace that transcends all understanding. Another added wrinkle to life is that we aren't the only people in this world. There are other people in this world. I know. Sometimes I forget. People who have different preferences and priorities, have made different choices, have different circumstances, and are equally invited to bring their cares before God. And we are happy, right, when those around us do approach God with their cares and burdens and dilemmas. However, part of the human condition is, to take a, te- is a tendency to look at our left and our right and compare ourselves and our situations to those around us. And there's a moment in this story that certainly has the potential to be very relatable to us. I'm referring to the moment when Jairus learns that his daughter has died. It would not surprise us at all if we had a window into the mind of Jairus and saw at least a smidgen of jealousy. After all, both Jairus and this woman came to Jesus for a miracle. Both demonstrated great and genuine faith. Yet, only one of them clearly received the blessing they had asked for, while the other apparently did not. And the twin of jealousy here is resentment. Because Jairus isn't really upset that this woman received healing, but he's potentially jealous of the attention she has received from God, apparently at his expense. And he's potentially resentful towards Jesus for paying attention to her and apparently neglecting him. The fatal flaw of comparison is the same as our sense of urgency. We have a very limited perspective. Let me put it this way. It's easy for me to sympathize with Jairus waiting for this woman to finish telling her story to Jesus so that they can continue the emergency trip to heal his daughter before she dies. And yet, as I sympathize with Jairus, I forget that this woman has waited 12 years to be healed. 12 years. She began seeking healing at roughly the same time that Jairus' daughter was born. Our perspective is very limited. 
Comparison is a temptation that only leads to jealousy and resentment. It never broadens our limited perception, perspective. It never leads to healing. We don't know why God has chosen to move on someone else's behalf now any more than we know why he hasn't seemed to have moved on our behalf. This is why we are invited to empathize with those around us rather than compare our circumstances to theirs. We're invited to rejoice with those rejoicing and mourn with those mourning. Maybe you've been praying earnestly for healing alongside another and they have received healing and you have yet to. Maybe you have asked Jesus to help you conquer a bad habit in your life and you see others around you who appear to have been delivered from the same habit and yet you struggle on. Resist the urge to compare yourself to those around you and the jealousy that accompanies comparison. None of us completely know the backstory of those around us. Our perspective, again, is limited. We don't know the struggle and trial of those who have received the blessings we seek any more than we know what blessings await us just around the corner. Let us rejoice with those who have received God's blessings and continue on to our final lesson for the story. There's one last lesson from the story that I want to focus on. There's a critical point of the story where a different decision would have drastically changed the outcome. While Jesus is talking with a woman he has just healed, messengers from Jairus' house arrive to report that Jairus' daughter has died. And Mark records that not only do they inform him of the daughter's death, the messengers also encourage Jairus to stop troubling the teacher further. Never mind. Jesus overhears this and says to Jairus, Do not fear. Only believe. And Jairus finds himself at a crossroads. One set of voices is telling him to accept his circumstances as irreversible and move on. The other voice is encouraging him to not deny reality, but to believe in God's ability to still move and act. Again, the struggle for us humans is our limited perspective. It is easiest for us to look through the whole of that piece of paper and accept that what we see is all there is to be seen. But rarely is that the case. And the words of Jesus to Jairus are an invitation to us as well. Do not fear. Only believe. Believe in what? Believe I will raise your daughter to life someday? Believe I will raise your daughter to life now? There are no specifics given here. Jesus doesn't make any promises. The invitation is simply for Jairus to believe that God's perspective is bigger than ours. He is never incapable of moving or on even the most hopeless circumstances. 
and that he wants us to remember, most importantly, that he is good. Jesus says, don't give up on me. Even though you can't see how I can fix this, trust me. Even if you are looking for something different than I will give, trust me. Even if it seems like I'm moving too slow or even not at all, trust me. And perhaps what helped Jairus have the faith and courage to trust Jesus was the immediate testimony of the woman who had just been healed. What better example of faith that wouldn't give up could there be? We know how this story ends, so it's easy for us to cheer Jairus on. Trust him. You can do it. Just wait. But when it's our story, our circumstances, our burden, it's not easy, is it? So you might be praying for a physical healing or relational healing or direction for your future or some other breakthrough. And you might be a place that you feel the scale has tipped. You've gone past the point of no return. You can't see any way forward that ends in your prayers being answered. Today, we want to encourage you to not give up. Keep trusting in Jesus. There's no guarantee that immediate divine intervention is a single prayer away, but without a doubt, the one who has pledged to make all things right is worth believing in. He is worth trusting in. He is worth knowing. Our perspective is limited, and that's okay, because his perspective is not. He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think. He's got all the time in the world, and then some. And he is good. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Continue even after today, even after we leave this room, and even after we go back to our jobs, maybe on Monday, continue to remind us that not only are you good, you're trustworthy, and you've got it all covered. And we can't see, we can only see through a tiny little hole what's going on and what you have planned for us. We have to trust the things that we can't see you're in control of and that you already have perfectly put in place, working for our good. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for this, these stories. Help them to be a constant reminder for us of your goodness, your power, and your perfect perspective.